Welcome to the New Wave Podcast, where we dive headfirst into Web3, personal sovereignty, spirituality, and psychology. These conversations are unfiltered access to brilliant minds and actionable advice that will prepare you for the rapidly changing world. So, jump in. The water is warm, and the tide is rising. Ah, my friends, welcome to another episode of the New Wave Podcast. Daniel Zibiaz is checking with you here. So happy to have you on this Mindset Monday. And today I want to talk to you a little bit about a light bulb that went on in my head. You know, I started studying economics in my free time way after I had already had the chance to learn it in school and it changed my life. And today we're not really going to talk, we're not going to take, we're not, I'm not going to teach you economics, but I'm going to talk about some of the concepts that are important that I've learned and also give you some context for how it works with everything that's happening in the new wave, with the philosophy I've been talking about, and how it all fits in. And uh, before we do that, before we jump in, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever channel you're listening to it on, whether it's Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, where else are we? iHeartRadio, all that stuff. And of course, make sure you go to newwaveentrepreneur.com and sign up for our email list. Make sure that you're uh, make sure that you're checking out all the stuff we're doing. Like for instance, all the new wave dinner experiences that I'm hosting, where you can come and have dinner with me. And uh, the next one's gonna be in Austin in June. And of course, make sure that you check out uh, the new wave Discord. That's our live community where you can get advice and help and friendship in real time digitally. Uh, that's free, and we have some free guides on the site as well. So make sure you check it all out. Now, let's jump into today's episode. So I really wasn't, well, I was probably in my late 20s when I finally realized that I'd never actually taken a course on economics. Uh, I understood supply and demand generally as a business owner, but I lacked any real perception of the mechanics of how money moves through people and systems. And I began studying economics in my free time by watching YouTube videos and reading books. And I began with microeconomics, which primarily applies to people and communities and companies. And later, I dug into macroeconomics, which expands its focus uh, to the global perspective. So I felt like uh, econ econ economics really gets a bad rap. And <clears throat> I find it fascinating, personally. The deeper I went down the rabbit hole, the more I began to see how culture, politics, and money all blend together to create the rise and fall of nations. And uh, so today, I'm really talking a lot about what I see as the slow death of the U.S. dollar, but it's really in the context of understanding how economics works. So I'm going to give you some brief, uh, a brief history lesson so you can understand how we got to this point and teach along the way where I can. Now, America rode the tide of two world wars to superpower status. We all know this, and I don't blame us. I would have done the same thing. The biggest advantage the U.S. enjoyed in the wars of the 1900s, by the way, can you believe that people will say, were you born in the 1900s? If you're born after 2000, well, geez, it just makes you sound a lot older. The biggest advantage that we shared, that we enjoyed in those wars in the 1900s was geographic isolation. And uh, we were an ocean removed from anybody who meant us harm. Uh, with allies above in Canada and people who we consider, consider inferiors, inferiors below us in Latin America, Mexico and Latin America. Now, World War II was largely fought on European soil, which meant almost all the physical and economic damage was contained there. Allied banks sent their gold reserves to, U to, to from Europe to U.S. banks. And this is where we started to make a lot of our money. This is where we started to build a lot of our national wealth. After the war, America had tons of gold from all over the world in its reserves, far exceeding that of any other nation on Earth. And rather than get all the gold back after the war, most of these countries accepted receipts on their gold in the form of U.S. dollars. The move by the U.S. set it up become, to become the number one global superpower and the U.S. dollar to become the de facto, de facto global reserve currency, right? So de facto just means 
by in in fact in name, right? It is no one no one has declared, no one has said the US dollar is the global reserve currency now, but because of the fact that everyone is now using dollars, that's what it is. <clears throat> and the global reserve currency is the standard of measurement against how all strong or, or basically the standard of measurement against how strong or weak other currencies are. And even more importantly, other countries all want to hold a global reserve currency on their balance sheet because it's seen as the most valuable in the world. America rode the economic elevator all the way to the top, writing its own checks and cashing them for a few decades. We were spending like fat cats and we were enjoying unprecedented growth in all sectors and we got greedy, okay? We got greedy. Just to, just to point something out too about the uh, global reserve currency, when you are the country that prints the currency that the rest of the world wants, that gives you the power to write your own checks because if you want to create a billion dollars, you can just go into your little ledger and say one with nine zeros. Now you have a billion dollars that you can loan out and you can make money anytime because your money is the hot money. You know, imagine if you had an Ethereum printer in your house or a Bitcoin printer in your house. Well, it would be really great because you could make as much as that as you wanted. But if you started to make billions and trillions of them, it would really water down the value of each individual coin, wouldn't it? Well, in 1971, President Nixon took the U.S. or took the United States off the gold standard, presumably as a way of relieving debt. And this effectively took the ceiling off how much money the Federal Reserve could issue and how much debt we could create because the money being printed did not have to be tied to any specific amount of gold in the vault. You know, so whenever you see those money machines going, that's us. You know, it's just unlimited, nonstop. And we started printing money like crazy to satisfy debt and to pay for new weapons of war and to subsidize other sordid or perverse things uh, that are outside the scope of this very unscholarly retelling. And since 1971, America has continued to print more and more uh, money every single year. And every year since 1971, the devaluation of the dollar has accelerated. $1 in 71 is worth $6.88 today. That means that the price of everything has gone up by about 7x. However, wages during the same period have stayed flat for the lowest percentile. You know, for the lowest X percentile, the most of people, wages have stayed flat. Now, to be sure, there are many factors at work that have contributed to the blemished and bloated American economic condition. And unlimited minute money printing is certainly one of the most significant causes. In 2020 and 2021, the Federal Reserve printed 40% of the total number of all dollars ever printed. I'll say that again. In 2020 and 2021, the Federal Reserve printed 40% of the total number of dollars ever printed in the history of the country. That's like filling a pool to 140% and hoping it doesn't flood, right? And that's basically inflation, and inflation is a real bitch. And we hear the words inflation, or we hear, hear the words hyperinflation thrown around us a lot, as if we're supposed to automatically know what they mean. And inflation simply means that the demand for a certain type of currency is going down relative to, the, relative to the volume of the currency being produced, which means it's going up. So if you're producing a lot of dollars, people don't need as many of them to, to they don't want as many of them anymore because there's a lot more in circulation and then the need goes down, the, the, desire, the desire goes down, the drive goes down. So it wasn't until recently that I began to understand inflation as the silent killer of wealth that it is. And I'd always known that, you know, inflation is bad because they always say inflation is bad, but I'd never taken uh, the time to look at what that means on paper. When inflation goes up, the same $100 buys you fewer and fewer items at the grocery store. That's a good way to think about it. And over time, this negative compounding really adds up. Inflation in the U.S., according to uh, the, the CPI index, which is the Consumer Price Index, uh, earlier this year, is rising. 
and it's 7%. So for most people, I know it feels like prices have surged more than just 7% in the last few years. But if you go to the grocery store, you can really see the effect. You can see the effect on how much food costs, gas costs, electricity costs. Just living is more expensive, and it seems like a lot more than 7%. I would say it's closer to 10 or 15%, uh, and that's being, you know, just just based off how it, how, how it feels to live, you know? Now, most savings account savings accounts get less than 1% year, uh, 1% of interest per year, which is APY. And at the current rate of inflation, if it is only 7%, which, again, we're, like, we're asking the government to audit the government or we're asking the audit to gut to audit the whole country and expecting them to give us honest results and honest statistics and we all know the statistics can be created and shaded and shaped in whatever way we want the outcome you know to be however we want the outcome to be created so i would say it's probably a lot higher most savings accounts get less than one percent interest the inflation is at least at seven so that means you're losing at least six percent interest per year by holding that money in the bank so basically you're losing money by holding it there. And this is why instead of keeping your capital liquid in a savings account, you should aim to invest the majority of your financial resources and assets that you accrue over time. So you you want to have things that beat the market. You want to have things that are going to go faster than than the inflation, which is right now at 7%. And right now you're already losing six by keeping it in your bank account. So that $100 that you had in there, if you leave it in there for a year, hypothetically will only buy you what 90 $3 would have bought you last year. How do you measure that? Well, it's hard to measure it exactly, but you sure feel it. And over time, you can measure it because you can look at the price of a gallon of milk and you can see how it's gone up seven times or something like that. So it can be a little hard to wrap your mind around the idea of a decreased buying power because the loss in value isn't something that's immediately apparent just by checking your bank account. But the theft is happening in the background and we are all victims, especially those in the middle and the bottom getting squeezed tighter and tighter. And I read a survey uh, recently, which reported that when California residents were asked how much money it would take to feel comfortable, the average response was $204,000 per adult. And I have to say that that actually um, that actually does uh, gel with my experience of living there. I can tell you that in my experience of living there uh, for the past seven years, we were in a, a one-bedroom apartment that was in, at anywhere between $2,800 and $4,000 at any given time. And now, for that same price in Oregon, we have a three-story house. But it, but West Coast is still much more expensive than Midwest. And uh, Midwest is a little bit more expensive than, well, actually, probably Midwest is the cheapest in the U.S. for housing prices. Um, the coasts are all, always the most expensive. All, all that to say that I highly uh, agree with the fact that you have to make multiple six figures in the major places like L.A., New York, or just major cities to be what used to be maybe having to make once just just six figures or just below six figures or even just to have that comfortable lifestyle. We used to talk about forty or fifty thousand being the like middle class average lifestyle. Now that seems to be not quite enough at all because if you're making forty let's let's say fifty thousand dollars a year, that's forty eight hundred dollars a month. Forty eight hundred dollars a month, you know, my rent I'm renting, my rent is thirty five hundred bucks a month. So granted I have a you know my wife, but it's like if my rent's thirty five hundred, well even if I, even if so if I'm making 50 grand a year, which is 4,800 a month, not enough. Okay, can't do anything else with that. Can't pay for groceries really, can't go out anywhere, can't save anything, can't have a dog, can't do nothing. But maybe if I made 100 grand, then I could afford the house. I mean, fine, but now you have to make 100 grand. And we don't have any kids. That doesn't include groceries, doesn't include insurance, doesn't include, uh, you know, going out to the movies, whatever. So it's, it's way more expensive. 
Due to the economic fallout from years of mismanagement, it's entirely possible that the U.S. is on the verge, in my opinion, of a steep and extended downturn with many obstacles ahead. And to some, the idea of an imminent downturn in America seems obvious, if not overdue, and others might laugh and say it's impossible. But me, I'm a realist. I'm a pragmatist, and I think it's foolish to assume anything, including a U.S. economic meltdown, is impossible. Not to mention the historical precedent of other great empires that have risen and meteorically fallen just as quickly. By the way, we're not that old of a country. We're only about 300 years, and uh, I just think it's I think it's funny how secure and certain we are in what we think we know, especially the fact that you know we're very sure that the American way of life is the best way of life, and I. I to be fair, I think that we do have many elements that are a great way of life, but we're so certain of ourselves. Meanwhile, we've only been around for 300 years, and we have a really easy, we we're very, very quick to bash, let's say, China, but China's been around for like thousands of years, so their culture is deeply, deeply ingrained, and we're very much a new kid on the block with a lot of strong opinions. Um, now, we are growing ourselves to death. And my guess is that the United States is likely to experience a gradual but steady ride down the economic ladder in terms of purchasing power of the dollar, and things will continue to feel a bit more expensive each year, but significantly more expensive a few decades from now. And the cost of goods and services will continue to rise as wages stay relatively flat, widening the gap between economic classes and continuing to cut out much of the previously middle class. And the top 0.01% will probably continue to collect Infinity Stones like Thanos, just collecting all the coins, or maybe the Infinity Stones or the Bitcoins now. Now... If we ever do enter into a legitimate depression, uh, you know, a significant economic hardship, I think the lowest low is likely going to be short-lived. A few years at tops, you know, it's going to be how we deal with that period and, and the rebound that makes the difference. And in the case of a hardcore economic meltdown in the U.S., the preparation you do now could be the difference between being utterly crushed by that tsunami, uh, you know, and riding it comfortably and maybe even profiting from it. And I'm not going to lie to you. This is going to take a lot of work. You're not going to, you know, just get there by listening to this podcast. You're going to have to go the extra mile to make it happen for yourself and your family. But remember, freedom and sovereignty are about preparation. If you want to become truly independent in the years to come, you're going to have to be proactive in how you approach your life, beginning with your finances. And to build wealth and economic shitstorm, you are going to need the right money mindset and the right income generating skills and the right wealth building plan. So that is what this podcast is all about. This is why I want to talk to you today about what I'm calling the New Wave Money Mindset. Hey, this is Daniel. Thank you so much for listening to the New Wave Podcast. We're going to get you right back to the show. But I wanted to tell you about this new mixtape that I just dropped. That's right. I dropped a mixtape and it's called Power Packs. So I know you are listening to this podcast and many others because you want to improve your life, you want to build your business, and you want to live well, and me too. And you know what I've discovered over the years? It's that even though I've learned from many mentors and teachers, the best mentor in my life has been, drumroll, myself. That's right, and, and I know it's the same for you. It just has to be because the truth is you can mentor yourself and you already have the answers to your own problems. What you need are the right questions to ask to spark your problem-solving machine. You have a creative genius for solving problems, but you have to ask yourself the right questions and Power Packs will help you to do that. This is a five-volume audio series designed to dramatically improve the quality of your life and business in just a single listen, but not because it contains any answers, because it asks you the actual questions you need to know to get your brain pumping. And in these five volumes, we cover 
The first volume is all about success in, in business and money. The second one is generating mental and physical health. The third one is all about strengthening your most valuable relationships. The fourth one is about unlocking your hidden creative genius. And the fifth one is all about thinking and being strategic. And these volumes are all available for free. Now, we've just released the first one. So if you want to learn about success with business and money, and you want to actually ask yourself the right questions to get you closer to successful outcomes there, then just go and download it. You can go to Spotify and get it, or you can go to newwaveentrepreneur.com, where you're already probably spending a good amount of time, and you can download it for free uh, right there. And you'll also get an outline of all the questions that I ask in that pack and my notes to help you move even faster through your business and your life goals. Now, we're also going to do a limited edition merch run and some other bonuses to celebrate the launch of this series, so make sure you check it out at newwaveentrepreneur.com. And of course, you can stream it for free and download everything for free. Much love. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to the show. Download Power Packs now. Let's get back to the episode. And I have five specific mindsets that I want to bring to your attention, but today we're out of time, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to preview two of these mindsets to you to keep you hooked, to make it feel like you're you're tuned in, to make it juicy, almost like a soap opera has a preview of what's about to happen on the next episode, and then we'll tune in on, on the next episode for the remainder. Because actually, how many do I have? Now that I'm looking at my notes here, it seems, lucky you, it seems that I actually have nine tenants, and that couldn't be possibly a way for me to do it all in one episode, but maybe, just maybe, we can do a part one and a part two. So, let me read some of these first tenets to you because I think they're highly relevant. And I tried to create them in a way where it's not really about you being an entrepreneur or you having a nine to five job or about how you're getting the money. It's about what you're doing with the money. So let's dig into the first couple ones today. We're going to do four of these. And then next Monday, you can tune in and listen to the remaining five of these new wave money principles. Okay, so let's tune in and let's tap in with these. So adopting the new wave money mindset. Naval Ravikant said, you're never going to get rich renting out your time. Forget rich versus poor, white collar versus blue. It's now leveraged versus unleveraged. I highly recommend you pick up the book. It's called The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. He actually didn't write it. It was it was collated from his, uh, his epic tweets that he does. Naval Ravikant is an investor, philosopher, entrepreneur. He created uh, Angel.co and a bunch of other um, well-known tech platforms. Right? Well, he didn't create a lot of tech platforms. He invested in many of them and he's created some and he's a very smart writer and he's a great philosopher who's made quite a lot of money. So check him out. And that book is really fantastic. Money begins in the mind. That means how you think about money matters. After all, your mindset creates your behavior and your behaviors shape your destiny. The good news is that you can actively change your mindset, behavior, and results with money through intentional effort. The examples and exercises that I'm going to share with you on this podcast will lay the foundation for those changes. Now, by the time the United States is in an even more obvious economic decline, it might be too late to begin updating your mindset around money and personal finance. And now is the time to begin setting up your defense to protect what you have and then planning your offense to get what you want. So, I've developed some tenants and I want to share them with you. I've developed nine tenants, five of which I'll share with you today, or maybe four, four to five, we'll see how I feel. And, uh, and then we'll cover the rest next week. But let's talk about tenant number one. Number one, the concept of money is fluid. So money isn't one thing. It's whatever we make it. How do I know? Because I've spent Jeffrey dollars at Toys R Us in the 90s. They were these little dollars that you could print out and or you would get at the store and they would give you and you could exchange them for toys. And they were considered legal tender anywhere else in the world, but they were as good as gold and the only place that mattered to me from 1988 to 2000. Okay, same thing when you, if you go to Chuck E. Cheese now or if you, you know, if you, 
you spend money on? What is it? Uh, like Minecraft or these video games? Same thing. And maybe that example is a little bit too far-fetched for you, you know. If I sent you a $500 Amazon gift card in your email, isn't that basically the same thing as cash? I think so, and that's what I mean. We are accustomed to using fiat currencies like dollars or euros as our primary form of money. However, money can take many forms. Through the rise of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, we've seen firsthand that money does not need to be physical, nor does it need to be authorized by centralized authority to hold value in the eyes of the people. That's, I think, the main important part. Money doesn't need to be held by a central authority. Money is something that is based on what we value, and that thing that we value doesn't need to be made by government. It can be made by Toys R Us. It can be made by whoever makes Minecraft. It can be made by Satoshi Nakamoto, who made Bitcoin. It's all about the value being exchanged. And there might even be instances where it being centralized is actually a disadvantage. But money and the concept of money is fluid. So that's tenant number one. Let's discuss tenant number two of money. And we're, we're trying to create a different understanding around money so that as we talk about things like crypto, as we move into new ways of making money, as we new, learn, learn about new ways of growing our money, we don't have the same frozen ideas around what it is. And it's more easy for us to understand what's going on. That's why we're talking about these tenants. Number two. Money is always the tool, never the objective. If you wanted, to, <laughs> so if you watch like me, uh, there's a show called DuckTales, and this is on maybe Disney growing up, and we probably shared some of the same fantasies. And it's this, this idea of a swimming pool full of gold coins and just jumping into that swimming pool full of gold coins in a vault, and just like Donald Duck swimming through the, uh, the coins. And I, I always remember that scene, I thought it would be so cool. And in reality, you know, that sounds kind of painful and probably a little masochistic, probably would hurt. Um, and also, that wasn't, that isn't how I would reward my richness. I would probably invest in something a little bit uh, more, more useful. But then again, gold is a pretty nice asset. But it also highlights the fact that money itself isn't particularly useful. Like you just holding on to money in gold coins isn't that useful in, a, in the middle of a pool. Isn't that useful? Um, we desire money because it's a powerful form of leverage and protection. And leverage gained from money gives you the ability to multiply yourself in your efforts, which saves you time. And the protection offered by money can provide insulation from inconveniences of pedestrian life. And we care about what money can do for us, not about money itself, which is why people say money doesn't make you happy. And Les Brown, the famous motivational speaker, said money doesn't make you happy, but everyone so wants to find out for themselves. And um, the idea here is that whenever we talk about money, we're not really thinking about the money that's going to make us happy. We're thinking about the next thing after that. We're thinking about now that I have this money, I can either solve this problem or acquire this thing or close this gap. And that's the thing that we're most excited about, but it's not the actual money itself. So if you put a swimming pool full of gold coins in front of me, I'd say that's pretty cool, but like I can't actually do anything with the gold. There's nothing that can be done with it. And Warren Buffett has a very similar mindset on this. He said that value to him is something where if you plant it in the ground, it will grow something. It will grow something else. So he says gold to him isn't intrinsically valuable because if he puts a bar of gold in the ground, nothing will happen. But if he puts the same amount of you know, barley in the ground, I'm thinking of barley, I guess an old guy like Warren Buffett would plant barley, I don't know. But if you put the same amount of barley in the ground, it will produce more barley. And I understand what he's saying there. It's like you want to create something that's going to create other things, not just sit there and collect dust. But you care about that money for what it can do for you. Alan Watts has a great uh, riff where he talks about how humans don't understand the difference between money and wealth. And 
you know, you can you can buy so many things uh, with money, but you often won't have any wealth because you don't you can't sustain any of it yourself. You know, you can buy food if you're wealthy, or you can buy food if you're rich and you have a lot of money. But if you don't have a way of producing food, do you really have wealth? And wealth, there's a certain element of being able to self-sustain, and there's a certain amount of leverage that comes from having uh, money that creates wealth over time. But it's not. It's not. It was never about the money itself. When if they change the way the dollars look, you won't care. It was never about the actual act of having the money. It's about the feeling that you get, the leverage that you get, and the protection and insulation that you can get from uh, from some of the inconveniences that life throws at you. So tenet number three: earn money with your mind, not your time. This is important, especially as we talk about things like the new wave. And Naval says that uh, Naval Ravikant said, like I said in the beginning, that you'll never get rich renting out your time. And you you want to make sure that you are, whenever possible, looking to get paid for the value that you provide, not the time you spend working on a problem. So, for instance, if I if I if you have a very important problem that I can solve in five minutes. But this problem is a $1 million problem that's costing you time, money, and emotional security. If I can solve that problem for you, and I can solve it in a short amount of time, and that problem will guarantee you that you'll have X result, and that you haven't been able to get X result up to this point, would you pay me a fair fee to solve that problem for you? Even though it only takes me five minutes, would you pay me what I'm worth? Even though it only takes me five minutes? Well, yeah, that's because you want to get that problem solved. And it's not about how long it takes me. It's about the result that you're getting and the value you're getting from achieving that result. A lot of us think that our time and our money must be connected. We think that if we're around or doing something for a certain amount of time, then that time is the thing that we're being valued for. But really what we're being valued for is the result that we're creating, especially as we move past nine to five jobs where we can see that everything that's happening is a result of value creation, not hours spent. Pablo Picasso illustrated illustrated this uh, uh, very profoundly, demonstrated this very profoundly. There's an allegory of him in a restaurant in Spain and a woman comes up to him and uh, she says, Mr. Picasso, I love your work. Will you please draw something for me? And he takes out a, a napkin that was sitting next to him and a pen and he sketches a beautiful bird and it takes him only a few minutes and hands it back to her and he says, that'll be $5,000. And she says, oh, $5,000 it only took you two minutes to, to draw that. He said, it's only two minutes to draw, but a lifetime to learn. You know, and that's what you're paying for. You're paying for the value, not the time. Especially as you go up the chain and you're working with people who master their craft and you work with them and you get their expert advice. Everything that they're telling you is the compounded wisdom of all the failures they took to get up to that point. And so it's not just the time in studio with you or in process with you. It's the time that they had to spend getting to that point. And that's something that you should make sure you're telling your clients too when you're working with them. It's like when they're, if you have a, a rate that charges, for instance, whenever I'm working with um, someone who's like freelancing, I always say anywhere between $50 and $100 an hour is where you want to stay. Because at that point, you can at least uh, make a healthy margin after taxes. And there's a lot of things that you have to pay for yourself when you're on your own. And sometimes they say, oh, well, I'm, I'm afraid to pay that much or I'm afraid to charge that much. And no one's ever charged, you know, no one's ever um, charged me or I've never, I've never charged anybody $100 an hour and I've never been charged $100 an hour. So I don't feel comfortable charging that much, you know, or somewhere around there. And I say, well, yeah, but you have to also explain to your clients that 
this isn't just you coming in for that one hour. It's also everything that leads up to that and everything that's going to happen after. So for instance, if if you're like me and when I first started off in business, I was doing SAT, ACT test prep. I had to not only drive to the house and teach the actual material, but then I had to follow up with the student and follow up with the parents. And so I counted that entire process as part of my fee because I got to drive there and I'm going to I'm going to expense that. I have to spend the time doing there and I've also spent a lot of time uh, creating those materials. I'm also going to give you lesson materials and something physical to take home and then I'm going to follow up with you and then I'm going to coach you, right? And so it's the entire process, the entire programming, not just the hour. And that process and programming is the value and that's what's being paid for. And really what's being paid for is the result because if you talk to someone and they say, well, what's it worth to you to get into Yale? Well, it's pretty much invaluable, meaning you can't be valued. So at that point, you say, well, great. Well, since you can't value it, I will. It's 100 bucks an hour. <laughs> that's what you owe me. right? And then they say, oh, that's not so bad. And that's how you talk to the parents about it. And, um, and so, yeah. So that's what you need to understand, that we don't necessarily want to earn money with our time. Uh, we want to earn it with our minds. And earning potential with your time is always going to be linear and finite, by the way. Most nine-to-five jobs operate on a time-based system, which is either wage or uh, or salary, and there are only two ways to make more money when you're earning with your time, and that's to work more hours or to get a raise. And both of these are levers that can produce more money, but how much more? You know, the number of hours you can work caps at a certain point as the quality of the work also goes down. And I would say that, you know, just knowing the traditional American workday, you know, the traditional American workday is eight to 10 hours, and how much of those, how much of that day is actually being spent productively? You know, first you have to get into the office and then you have to like, oh, I'm just like adjusting to the day and it's like nine o'clock and it's like 10 o'clock and you're like, oh man, it's time for that first coffee break. So you've like only logged into your computer, looked through some emails. And then like after 1030, you get like maybe an hour of work in and it's like, oh, it's lunchtime. And then you go out and you're like, you know, and then you sit back at your computer, you're like spinning around. You probably get of an eight hour day, you'd be lucky to get three focused hours on like on task. It doesn't mean that you aren't make, making phone calls and stuff, but like on a, on a task with high leverage that creates big results, you probably get three hours. And those three hours are probably broken up into 30 or 40 minute chunks in between bites of kale. You know, that's me, it's kale, you know, but sometimes other things. Anyway, it, it, it's not unbroken attention. And so the quality of it is not good. And so there's only so much you can, you can spend on it. And of course, getting a raise, well, you're never going to, uh, you're never going to get wealthy asking someone else, you know, and um, it's just the, the leverage isn't very high. Now, we're at the dawn of the crypto era and the entire concept of pegging our value to an hourly rate uh, or salary needs to be retired or at least reexamined. This is, an, this is uh, kind of like an industrial era framework that limits your potential and keeps society mediocre at best. And I can clearly remember flipping through uh, the book of, of potential majors in my college guidance counselor's office and scrolling through all the listings and looking to see which majors had the highest potential earning salary. And I was going about things all wrong. If I would have done that, I would have been a doctor or a computer scientist. And I don't think I would have been very good at any of those. In fact, I, I uh, basically flunked out of the undergrad requirements for doctor because I just couldn't get my head around the chemistry. I just didn't want to do it. I just, just my brain just rejected it, you know? And, um, it's never about a salary or wage. That keeps you small. Earning with your mind is exponential and infinite. It means your income is not limited to what you can physically produce while you're awake. It's about really the value and the outcome you can produce and the systems you can leverage to create value for others. So for example, digital assets are great examples of earning with your mind and not your time. 
So assets like books, media, which could be podcasts, it could be music, it could be, you know, anything, anything in the digital space, uh, things like code, you know, these are all permissionless, I meaning you don't need to ask anybody else or, you know, they don't, no one else needs to hire you. You don't need to get a yes from someone. Once they're in the market, the product kind of speaks for itself. And there's also no marginal cost of replication, I meaning there's no inventory to purchase or to manage. Uh, these are purely digital products like media or code. These are totally lightweight and it's all coming from your mind. And these types of assets don't require much money or manpower to produce up front and they can continue to make money after they've been shipped without much additional time spent. And I suspect as the economy continues to be, take a beating, uh, creating these types of assets will be an increasingly valuable skill set. So I highly recommend you spend time thinking what ways you can create some lightweight knowledge-based products, whether it's something in media, you know, I'm doing podcasts and the eventual tracked revenue for me here is multiple different state, uh, you know, stages from sponsorships to selling products and services to doing events to doing digital courses, maybe even e-commerce and merch. There's lots of ways I can monetize this podcast. I have to figure out the best strategy and the best sequence. But the fact that it's digital and that it can be reproduced quickly, cheaply, and effectively is what makes it so powerful. Now, if you want to go even deeper into things that are digital assets, that this is a platform really, but a digital asset like a piece of code that is a product is an even more scalable piece of digital asset or even a, um, yeah, I mean, there's just like, like a book or a movie. Those themselves are the product. So while the podcast that you're listening to is, a, is more of a platform, I'm not selling it, so it's not an actual, it's not a, a, a an asset itself because it's not sellable. It's not necessarily worth a dollar amount. A piece of software that you scale is completely lightweight and does have a lot of value, even a book or a movie. You think about a book, you read a book one time and it just keeps selling all over the world. I have a book out and it's in, I don't know, six or seven different languages and it still sells in Taiwan right now. And I'll still get a small amount of money from that. And it's still permissionless. Um, so that is something I really think is, and actually that there was some permission behind that because that we put out through a publisher. And so there was permission I had to get, but even now you don't need permission to publish a book anymore. That's what's so beautiful about this age. I mean, think about the, think about how many centuries we had to get up to the point with Martin Luther and the printing press before we could even publicly disseminate information if you weren't a member of the clergy. And then even from then being able to publicly and, and, and at a broad scale produce and publish stuff. And then from there going digital. And then from there, now we don't need a printing press or a publishing house. We can literally make our own books, you know? So it's pretty, uh, pretty insane. We can make our own albums. We don't need any of that stuff anymore. The studio time I'm spending now would have cost thousands a decade ago, you know, or two decades ago. It would have been much more expensive. And all this stuff because of the changes in the analog to digital and because of uh, the speed of the internet and transferring data. And so we've shrunk everything down. You know, uh, guys, I've created a lot of info products and uh, back in the day, just to film something and produce it and put it on a VHS tape, that would have been a massive ordeal. It would have been a national campaign. I would have had to roll out and, you know, I would have had to have funding for all that stuff. Now there's a, at the very least, there's a computer built into your phone and your computer and you have editing software built in already. And everything is really just waiting for you and your brain to press go. And that is what's so cool about this era. And that is why really permissionless media has the most leverage. But this is a tenant that I want you to understand about money, that you can not only use money in many different forms, like I mentioned in some of the other tenants, but that you can create money pretty much at will with your mind. And now the question is, how will you choose to create money with your mind? That's the question. Hey there. Did you know that this isn't a podcast you're listening to? Okay, let me be more clear. This isn't just a podcast you're listening to. See, by listening to this show, you're actually part of the New Wave community. And because of that, 
I really want to meet you, IRL, in real life. Wouldn't it be nice to spend some time in a beautiful location, maybe a mansion by the sea with a chef catered dinner, knowledgeable friends who really want to help you, a cello playing in the background, and you know, an overall great ambiance. Doesn't that sound gorgeous? Well, we just created that at a recent New Wave dinner in LA, and I want you to be part of the next one. See, these dinner experiences are for entrepreneurs, career climbers, and creatives who want to build friendships with each other in real time, in real life, not just spending time chatting on the internet. We want to actually feel each other's presence, and we spend time together uh, bringing our business problems, bringing our half-baked ideas, bringing our creative questions. Then over a, a wonderfully catered meal, we work together as a group to help, help each other untie these knots and dial in our focus. And afterwards, we go and relax. We take a dip in a pool. I always get a place with a pool or a jacuzzi, have some drinks, we do a little bit of partying. And you will leave this experience with connections and brand new ideas and budding relationships. And you might even find your next co-founder or your next investor sitting right next to you. But more importantly, you are going to leave with a jumping off point, some momentum to go into this next phase of your life, this next chapter, uh, some new ideas that you didn't have before, something that's been enhanced that you know you have confidence in. Now you're gonna build that inner momentum. And that's what's so important. And of course, when you're there, I'm also going to bless you with some new wave merch. If you've been looking at my photos, I'm constantly making new merch and new gear just to show the community that, you know, we got something special going here. So make sure you check out the next new wave dinner experience. Now we're doing these all over the country and potentially all over the world. We did our first one in LA. We're going to be doing them in Austin, New York, Miami, and a few other cities. Plus most likely we're going to hit the UK or Europe. So make sure you go to newwaveentrepreneur.com to check out all the dates. We'll have them all listed there. And of course, you can uh, you can sign up. There's going to be about 10 to 12 people per location. So this isn't a massive um, conference. This is a 10 to 12 person event. And that means that it's purposely designed for you to meet people, to engage with them, and to have a whole hell of a lot of fun. So make sure you check out newwaveentrepreneur.com to get all the dates and locations for the next one. I, I believe depending on when you're listening to this, the next one is in Austin this summer and it'll be all over the country. So sign up and now let's get to the episode. Okay, let's give you a couple more quick little tenants before we cap it for today. So tenant number four is money is the seed, not the fruit. The typical consumer mindset sees the money as the positive end result of hard work, like a fruit to be consumed and enjoyed. The wealthy mindset sees money as the necessary input to start the machine, a seed that should be planted and nurtured until a forest grows. So would you rather have more fruit or more fruit trees? That's the question. You know, for me, I think this is a, you know, just a learning lesson in general. You have to, you, you, I think that you have to make some money to understand the value of a dollar or you have to grow up in a family where someone really ingrains that into you. I didn't really have a, uh, very like a financially aware upbringing. And so I had to then develop that myself. I had to read books and then get my own uh, my own experience and my own practice. And what I've learned is that obviously um, money is fun to make and you can spend almost any amount of it. If you just watch how major celebrities, like not, don't think, don't look at me, look at people like, I don't know, Mike Tyson, who like spent all his money. He had like $400 million and he spent all of it. You know, that just goes to show you there's no amount of money that you can make where you can't spend it all. Maybe Elon Musk, maybe Jeff Bezos at this point. I was reading some pretty crazy stats about like how much money they have. Something like, um, something like, uh, the, if you're, um, if every, if every grain of sand is, you know, is a hundred dollar bill, Jeff Bezos has an entire white whales worth of money in his bank account compared to the average something like that just crazy amounts of uh crazy amounts of or if if, if 
one grain of sand was the average person's lifetime earning, something like that. Um, but just crazy amounts of comparisons, just exorbitant comparisons. Um, but I have seen that even with those comparisons in the rich getting richer, I have seen that the that investment is something that, that people who didn't start from that mentality can can learn and they can mimic the wealthy because the wealthy use other people's money and other vehicles to grow their own money. And I had to learn that as well through reading, through through just making mistakes and find that your money is best put in assets. So like, for instance, what's going on in the world and the country right now, like we can talk about crypto as much as you want, but I think also the stock market is a great place to put your money just because, look, you know, frankly, where else are you going to put it? Like, obviously there's going to be recessions at times. There might even be depressions. But if you look at what's happened in the recessions and depressions of the past, the stock market is still recovered and continue to go up because people still like buying shit. And personally, I wouldn't necessarily want to bet against the stock market because that's like betting against Google. And I know Google, Apple, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, they're all kind of evil. And because they're evil, they're going to try to stay in business. And they're going to stay in business for as long as they can, along with all the other companies who are not going to stop making money. And they have so much power and resources that I can't see them ever losing their grip. So if you look at the top 100 companies, yes, they are changing quicker than they used to. But because they have so much access to capital and the willingness to stay on top, I think that alone is going to keep them profitable. And if you can attach yourself to them in some a minor or major way, you'll continue to improve. Because remember, if inflation is going at 7%, which means we're losing seven of every $100 per year left in the bank, then you want to do something that's that's outpacing that. You know, you want to find something that's outpacing it 10, 15% and, and go with that. Now, if you look at things like um, EFTs, which are exchange, oh, ETFs, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, NFTs, ETFs. If you look at ETFs, which are exchange-traded funds, they're basically like baskets of stocks, similar to mutual funds, but the difference is they're not managed by a person. They're just managed by a, by a machine. And these are like indexes of, for instance, if you, that, uh, there's one called VOOG, which is like the Vanguard Growth Fund, and it's like, like 10 to 20 of the top tech companies. So it would be like Apple, Amazon, Dell, um, NVIDIA, probably Chase, because I think they might even be in technology, even though they're a financial services company. But they're all the top 10 companies, and you put your money in there. And I think a share right now is like 200 bucks, 220. And then it just basically has a different percentage of each of those companies has a piece of that of that ETF. And every time those companies do well, you do better. And I just wouldn't bet against Google because they care. They're going to win. <laughs> so as long as they're winning, I'm winning. Now, you can get to the point where you say, well, am I investing ethically? And do I want to only invest in companies that I feel like are in line with my values? And of course, that's something that you consider for yourself. But at the same time, we can take that and say, all right, my money is best not as the as the fruit of something that I'm going to eat, but as the seed of something that will grow more later. And it doesn't mean that you don't use your money as well to, to do your life's work and to move along and buy things and pay things and all that stuff. But always remember to be reserving some and not just saving it, but growing it and investing it wherever you can. So that's tenant number four, money is the seed not the fruit. And tenant number five, material riches and true wealth are not the same. We talked about this just a bit, um, but they're not even in the same universe. You know, riches and wealth are connected, yet entirely separate concepts. Now, keep in mind, this admission is coming from the man who wrote a book called Rich 20-something, so it's very painful to internalize this for me, but riches like to sit on the sidelines between sprints, while wealth never stops running the marathon. It's a steady pace of accumulation over time. And I, I already gave kind of that example of uh, Warren Buffett, but the way I think about it is that if you plant a gold bar in the ground and you hide it from the world, you're going to remain rich forever, right? Just rich though. But you can keep stacking gold bars up and you'll have amassed a lot of gold over time. 
However, you're going to have produced nothing new and the potential for growth is relatively low. The wealthy move is to liquidate those bars into cash, buy a business that produces money, then use that cash flow to buy more gold bars than you had before. Same starting place, different strategy, <laughs> you know? And riches can be spent all the way down to zero, but wealth is harder to kill because it's self-sustaining. A rich person can lose the bulk of their money in a bad divorce or the aftermath of an ill-advised tweet. A wealthy person exits, or I'm sorry, exists in a system of money that cannot be taken down quite as easily because there are so many assets producing income. Jeff Bezos had the costliest divorce in the history of the world and came back the very next year with a bigger net worth than before. Okay? <laughs> you know, <laughs> when I think about that, when I think about that, I imagine that killing a billionaire is kind of like slaying a Medusa only to see her sprout a new income stream with every subsequent blow. And the, his his wife, uh, Mackenzie Bezos, I think is her name. I wonder, I wonder if when she was getting divorced, she was feeling that sense of, I really stuck it to him. And then to look the next year and see that he had doubled his net worth since the divorce. I guess she can't really feel too bad because she still ended up getting almost $98 billion out of it. And she's given away quite a lot of it. That's out of the scope of this. But you really do see the difference between wealth and riches. There are a lot of wealthy people in court who've gotten destroyed with one bad decision. But I don't think you could do that to some of these people. Uh, they're very, very hard to take down because wealth is self-perpetuating. And there are some other uh, money and wealth tenements, uh, tenants that I think you need to know about. And I'm going to read some of them to you here, but I'm going to fill in those gaps next week. But I think these are extremely important for you navigating your life and essentially serving this new wave. Tenant number six, money behaves best on autopilot. Tenant, tenant number seven, money equals volume times time times skill. Tenant number eight, money craves consistency. And tenant number nine, a strong defense is better than a killer offense. But we're going to talk about exactly what those mean in the upcoming episode. Until then, make sure you're tapped into everything that we're doing here at the New Wave Podcast. Make sure you sign up for our email list so you actually get an email when we release the second episode with the next parts of these tenants. And make sure that you're subscribed and you leave a comment on whatever uh, platform you enjoy listening to this on. NewWaveEntrepreneur.com. Uh, much love, guys. The water is warm. The tide is rising. Let's jump on in and surf this new wave. Daniel 